I'm honored to be invited by Truett uh, to this opportunity to lecture to you. I want to thank Roger and Todd Still for the kind uh, work they've done to keep me organized, which is not easy to do. And because we have a lot to do, I want to dig right in this morning. Uh, and my topics will be on evangelicalism, gospel, universalism, and atonement, uh, which ought to be at least controversial enough to say things uh, that will be controversial. And I, and I hope to stir some interest in these conversations. Stanley Hauerwas once reflected why he, a Texan, was received so well by the Australians. He said, I may also be better received in Australia because Australians bear an uncanny resemblance to Texans. Their history ensures that like Texans, they do not have anything to live up to. It has become fashionable in Australia, in fact, to show that your family can be traced to a convict. It is thus hard to be an Australian and live with pretensions. As a result, Australians are a lot like Texans. What you see is what you get. The same can be said, perhaps, of evangelicals. Some of us, apart from the grace of God, could have been convicts. But surely what you see is what you get, and what we see is not always pretty. And it seems to be a sport to point such lack of beauty out to anyone who will listen, and I will do the same this morning. One of the most humiliating dimensions of being a Bible professor is the realization, recently come home with powerful force in Christian Smith's book, The Bible Made Impossible, the realization that what I think is flat out clear in the Bible, like some of my Anabaptist ideas, or a more Arminian understanding of perseverance, is for others flat out wrong, if not wrong-headed. To flip this around, some people believe things that are incomprehensible to me, like dispensationalism, like double predestination, like contending the Bible teaches free market enterprise, or like thinking Jesus would be in favor of dropping bombs on Middle Easterners. So we evangelicals dwell in my, what might be called a confusing chaos of consensus. Chris Smith took this lack of clarity on crucial topics like atonement and ecclesiology and eschatology to be something that not only undermined a biblicist approach to the Bible, but called for yet a completely different way, a more Christocentric approach to Bible reading. Our Biblicism has indeed produced also a bewildering variety of evangelicals, and defining just what one is creates its own difficulties. So maybe we need to be more honest about what we see and say that it's all we've got and it's who we are. The question for us then is not just what is an evangelical, but even more, whose evangelicalism? I'd like to begin with this dog-eared topic of defining evangelicalism today because in the lectures that follow tonight on universalism, tomorrow on gospel, and Thursday on atonement, one's view of evangelicalism is at stake in every substantive decision. I'd also like to begin here because, frankly, I'm irritated with what's happened in the last two gay two decades 
and that means what's going on now. And I'd also like to begin here because there just might be something else to say. So you know where I'm headed this morning, and so you can choose the spots to doze, check your email, or enter into mental reveries. What we will do is sketch three views of evangelicalism, and then I want to suggest there's more work to be done when it comes to defining evangelicalism. I'm not a professional historian of this uh, debate. However, I have been diagnosed with a specific kind of madness that has accompanied me my entire academic career, a kind of madness that makes me want to read book after book on this topic. And once I counted on my own shelves that I had read more than four feet of books on evangelicalism and fundamentalism. That reading has led me to say some trendy things over the years about evangelicals, sometimes not even very well supported. And I will continue at least one of these trends this morning. First, Randy Balmer, who called evangelicalism a patchwork quilt. Randy Balmer and I were near contemporaries as students at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His father became the pastor of my parents' church, but I didn't meet Randy until much later. But when he published Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, I read it and simultaneously covered my eyes and opened them with utter astonishment at the story he put together. Whose evangelicalism is surely a question that confronts the reader of Randy Balmer. If Randy gets to define evangelical, he does so by showing it it is some kind of unexpressed consensus in the midst of bewildering chaos. Put differently, Randy defined evangelicalism sociologically. That is, he gathered all those who are more or less connected to evangelicalism, either through participation in the National Association of Evangelicals or through social connection with those who are or who have similar beliefs, and then with that group sketched the amazing variety of American evangelicalism. Perhaps the fallout of Balmer's book is that theology is diminished into a social configuration or even little more than a legitimating apparatus, or that theology is neither the defining nor identifying factor in determining what is or who is an evangelical. Some of the folks who land in Randy's books are not what I would call evangelical, but very, very few people ask me when they define such a term, and those whom Randy includes are more or less those most would include. I want to call Balmer's approach the popular understanding of evangelicalism. The who in this one is the majority of the media and a fair number of theologians and pastors. Many people then see an evangelical to be a loose confederation, I use this term because of its relevance in Texas, of Protestants whose beliefs and practices are all over the map and even off the map. Now, to a second view, I want to discuss more completely because it's what's irritating some of us. Neo-Puritanism. My aim is to describe something about evangelicalism that has changed dramatically in the last two decades or less. I came of age as a theologian and professor when evangelicalism was a coalition of similarity. 
And that similarity involved a core gospel, a commitment to scripture, a belief in the importance of evangelism and world missions, and a life shaped especially by holiness and sometimes even love. That coalition was led by Billy Graham, the one person in the 20th century that most people simply didn't want to criticize. John Stott, who more or less was treated in the same way by my generation and by Christianity today. Alongside uh, Billy Graham was Harold Ockingay and the National Association of Evangelicals as they somehow constructed out of a fractious group a trans-denominational coalition. There is something about this coalition that younger evangelicals, and I'm in the habit of recognizing this to them, that they simply don't know anything about. The evangelical coalition of the Billy Graham years was a safe harbor for those who wanted no part of American fundamentalism. This neo-evangelical coalition was, so we hoped, evangelicalism truly come of age. We turned from the past and we embraced a new future. We found Graham's latitudinarian permissions on his stage and in his cooperations to be a breath of genuine ecumenical air, and we found Stott's focusing on what unites us instead of what divides us as to be just the right thing. There was also an atmosphere of optimism about the whole movement, a sense that we weren't a bunch of backwater clodhoppers suddenly set down in a big city. Notably, this new future included the rise of evangelical and academically respectable scholarship, a movement well documented, documented by Mark Knoll's book, Between Faith and Criticism, in spite of his later complaint that we hadn't gone far enough in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Mark Knoll's most recent book, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind, is suggesting that he's even more optimistic than he was. This embrace of an intellectually responsible scholarship owes a huge debt to the call of Carl Henry in his book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, uh, namely that neo-evangelicals were challenged to become more intelligent about faith and were called to put obscurantist fundamentalism behind us. But something began to shift in the Reagan years, and I'm not blaming it on politics, except that I probably am. I want to describe this in two parts, method and results. The method, which owes as much to Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live, and then his A Christian Manifesto, as it does to the strident methods at work in American fundamentalism was to use cultural warriors and politics to make things happen. And things did happen. An anecdote will illustrate my point. I did my seminary work at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School matriculating in 1976 after attending a fundamentalist college and attending Trinity in order to find intellectual and theological freedom. My experience as a student was everything I wanted, and it began on opening day. Walt Liefeld was the professor of record. The course was called the Synoptic Gospels, a course that changed the direction of my life. Walt prayed, 
and then distributed the syllabus and then began to go through it. But he was interrupted by a student who stood up to ask a question without gaining permission. The student was named, if I have it right, Tom Stevens. Tom, in effect, publicly and stubbornly filibustered Walt Liefeld's syllabus because it had, because it had nothing about something he was calling social justice. Tom wouldn't sit down when Walt asked him to. Tom, I soon learned, was a close associate of a fellow named Jim Wallace, about whom I had never heard a word. Tom wrestled Walt in class, finally gave up, walked out, and withdrew from school. I thought, this is going to be fun. I didn't finish seminary until about 1980, but that's because I was married, had two kids, worked the early morning shift at UPS, and slept blazingly weird hours. In 1980 to 1981, I taught two exegesis courses at Trinity, and then in the fall of 1981, Chris and I jammed enough of, for a family of four into six suitcases and attended the University of Nottingham. In the fall of 1983, I was given an opportunity to teach at TEDS as an adjunct, which evolved rather oddly as it turned out into a tenured post as I replaced Wayne Grudem in the New Testament department. I think I filled his shoes, or should I say, I filled other shoes. And in the first week of my teaching career, the student council president led chapel in prayer. What he wore shocked me to the core, and I almost and got up and walked out. He was wearing a military uniform. He was a chaplain, and it represented to me the impact of the Reagan years and the shifting tide among evangelicals. The point is not that I'm a passive, pacifist, which I am by the grace of God. The point is that when I was a student, a student who wore a military uniform could never have become the student council president at Trinity. Not on your life. Folks descending from Jim Wallace ran the politics of the school until Reagan and until the moral majority and until Francis Schaeffer. The story does not prove, but it illustrates that during the 1980s, American evangelicalism began to shift toward a culture war. And one of the best studies was written at the turn of the 90s by James Davison Hunter. The culture war led to significant shifts in American evangelicalism. The intellectual renaissance that Knoll has studied both began to rise but also began to be questioned. Sometimes Machiavellian leadership began to take over other places, and I hope you don't mind if I mention Southern Seminary in Louisville. Seminaries increasingly began to be influenced by church leaders and pastors and authors who called into question theological views that were part of the coalition, but that were pressing the envelope, the single most notable example being Harold Linzel's bombast called the battle for the Bible. For many, the scapegoat became fuller seminary, and it was either going to get back to its fundamentalist roots, or it was going to go the way of Andover Newton. Clark Pinnock moved from being the darling who wrote biblical inspiration with Moody Press to the naughty guy who wrote the scripture principle with Harper and Rowe. The Evangelical Theological Society became the place for theological culture wars, 
And for me at least, it all fell apart when they removed Bob Gundry and I withdrew my membership and have not since become a member again. Not that I think I'd be welcomed. John Stackhouse has recently said this about ETS. It's where you go when you want to complain about another evangelical's theology and particularly if you want to establish certain boundaries of evangelical acceptability. He goes further with this. What you don't find at the ETS or in its journal is theology that makes much positive difference. Every other year or so, they find a new person to scapegoat. And well, what I want to say is this just isn't the coalition of Billy Graham and John Stott anymore. The rise of this sort of action among post-fundamentalist neo-evangelicalism heralds a new day. If its method is culture war, the result of this movement during the Reagan years may be most accurately called neo-Puritanism. Al Mohler calls it confessional evangelicalism, and in his mind, this means Reformation theology, but without having to confess such things aloud or in subscription at a local church. For the life of me, I don't know what Mohler means by confessionalism, because it is, to be even more direct, I want to say it this way, what he means by confessionalism is not what confessionalism means. Furthermore, there's no mechanism by which one can hold anyone accountable in this so-called confessional evangelicalism other than public affirmations or disapproval, so there's plenty of both. I am making the claim that neo-Puritanism is driven and energized by seeking a way to be the magisterium for evangelicalism. Neo-Puritanism is not the term I normally use. But every time I mention this on my blog, someone tells me I've got the wrong term. The media is calling these people the new Calvinists. CT dubbed it the young and restless reformed with Mark Driscoll as its poster boy. And I have often referred to it as the neo-reformed. Academic friends tell me neo-reformed isn't fair because they, as reformed, are neo, they think they are neo-Calvinists. But some Calvinists tell me that's not fair to Calvinism. So I'm calling them today Neo-Puritans because no one else calls them that. (laughs) Here's a way of expressing it, and then I want to name some names so we can get on with it. A significant date in the rise of Neo-Puritanism is October 18, 1966. And the event was held at the Methodist Central Hall in Westminster, London. British evangelicals were debating forming the United Church, a coalition of British evangelicals, and for some this meant seceding from the Anglican Communion, while for others it meant an increase in institutional size for evangelicalism. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a powerful preacher and Calvinist theologian, said it straight away. He said, ecumenical people put fellowship before doctrine, and then he offered the counter. We, as evangelicals, put doctrine before fellowship. There is considerable dispute about what Lloyd-Jones intended to do that night. Did he mean to plea for evangelical secession from the Anglican Communion and to form a united church? Or did he simply want the evangelical churches to form stronger alliances? 
The House is divided, and I have not examined all the primary documents to render judgment, nor is it particularly important to me. What is important is that this event, which was followed immediately by a firm warning to Lloyd-Jones by John Stott, who was chair that night, was seen as a watershed in England. Shortly after this event occurred the famous Keel event in England, and it did nothing if it didn't broaden the meaning of the word evangelical, which became yet another cause of concern for the Lloyd-Jones-led neo-Puritan side of the evangelical movement in England. Evangelicalism was becoming indifferent to its associations, and the neo-Puritans wanted it to stop. Lloyd-Jones has had a massive impact in the United States on people like Piper, Carson, and Tim Keller. As Ian Murray tells the story in his Evangelical Divided, there are some strong and robust and faithful evangelicals, and there are some who compromise in coalitions and denominations and therefore jeopardize the pure gospel, a gospel understood clearly in Reformed and Puritan terms. For Murray, the compromise-driven coalitionists include Billy Graham, J.I. Packer, upon whom he zeroes his attention, John Stott, Mark Knoll, Alistair McGrath, David Watson, Jimmy Dunn, Fuller Seminary, and Christianity Today. The good guys are Martin Lloyd-Jones, the later Carl Henry, David Wells, D.A. Carson, the Churchman, and Gerald Bray. I want to call this perception of evangelicalism, which I think is powerfully influential in the United States right now, wherein generous coalitions lead inevitably to doctrinal compromise and wherein the true and faithful are Puritan-leaning, banner of truth reading, and Calvin quoting, I want to call this latter group the Neo-Puritans. The leading voices in this movement today are John Piper, who has had the lion's share in making this movement both an attractive and a cutting instrument. David Wells at Gordon Theological Seminary, D.A. Carson and the Gospel Coalition, and Al Mohler and Together for the Gospel, who represent Southern Seminary, which now considers itself both evangelical and reformed or Lutheran, or Puritan, or Calvinist. But without the little requirement to sign on the line officially or with a confession. They are flanked by younger, charismatic, intelligent pastors like Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, Francis Chan, Kevin DeYoung, and David Platt. They appeal to scripture powerfully and do so through the interpretive lens of John Calvin various Puritans, and especially Jonathan Edwards. They write intelligently, they speak forcefully, and they judge constantly. For this crew, the gospel revolves around penal substitution and justification by faith, read through the lens of double imputation, which I will get to tomorrow and the next day. The Neo-Puritans are attracting young and old pastors, not just because they are persuasive, but also because they have become a voluminous and numinous presence in a gaping hole 
left by the superficiality of another dimension of America's evangelical coalition, the atheological, populist, personality-driven movement that grew, budded, and has flourished in a nest of this non-confessional evangelical coalition. John Piper talks about God. The atheological pastors talk about felt needs. I'll stop there except to say this. The populist, atheological, evangelical movement is huge, and it converts lots of folks, but it does not satisfy many, and they search for theological depths, and they are finding it in the neo-Puritan movement. I don't blame them, but I'm not at all happy about it. At almost the same time that this neo-Puritan movement awoke into a major movement, there were others who knew the evangelical populist movement was theologically bankrupt, but they were moving in a completely different direction. That movement is often called the emergent or emerging movement. The cutting edge of this movement was shaped in private meetings, in bars, and over coffee. The leaders were Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, Chris Say, Tim Keel, and others. Populist evangelicalism is as much to blame for the neo-Puritans as it is for the emerging movement. I should put it in reverse. The neo-Puritan and emerging responses to the superficiality of populist evangelicalism are both appropriate and needed. What is important for our purposes now is that the neo-Puritan movement thinks it alone is the truly evangelical movement. While the truly Reformed theologians like Michael Horton or Carl Truman, Westminster guys, aren't even concerned to capture or define or colonize the term evangelical because Reformed is the only term they really want or need, this neo-Puritan group really does want to define evangelicalism and it wants to push everyone else off the village green or out from under the big tent coalition. Well, not so much push off or push out as convert to their way of thinking, and until folks are converted to their way, they'll contend that others simply aren't faithful to the evangelical tradition. It's a hard game to play because there are no umpires. It all gets down to whose evangelicalism we are talking about. If you think evangelicalism is defined by the reformers, and you are not Lutheran but reformed, then this neo-Puritan movement offers a compelling argument. But if you define evangelical by the New Testament, then they offer less of a compelling argument, and I'll get to this tomorrow. If you think evangelicalism is defined not so much by the Reformation or by the Edwardsian revival, but by the American revivalists, you will have observed already that we haven't even mentioned one Methodist. We can trot out John and Charles Wesley and follow through an unbroken line of gospel-preaching theologians from them through Finney and all the way up to Wesleyans like Ben Witherington. Don Dayton famously contended that evangelical must include the Wesleyans, the revivalists, and the charismatics. His scholarship has been single-mindedly directed at critiquing the reform mold forced on all matters uh, evangelical by the neo-Puritans. So while I have some sympathies with the colossal need for evangelicalism to come to terms with a theology 
that is robust enough to sustain it and give it vision in a postmodern world. I am unconvinced the Neo-Puritans can lay claim to being the true evangelicals. This can be argued biblically and historically, which to me favors the Donald Dayton line of thinking. And then one, one cannot cut off the impact of Billy Graham and John Stott on how to define evangelicalism. If one describes evangelicalism as a coalition yoked to the gospel and to the Bible and to piety, then the neo-Puritan movement begins to take on the looks of either retreating back into pre-coalition days, namely fundamentalism, or which is probably more accurate, coalescing into a narrow theological movement. So when neo-Puritans call themselves confessional evangelicals, and Al Mohler is a good example of one who does this, they are assuming a public stance over against coalition evangelicals, which leads me now to a third way of defining evangelicalism, one that I think gets more to the heart of what evangelicalism is about, the quadrilateral of David Bebbington. In many ways, David Bebbington's many researches into the meaning of the term evangelical and he is followed by America's number one church historian and historian of evangelicalism, Mark Knoll. In many ways, Bebbington's quadrilateral counters Balmer's more sociological approach because it seeks for central theological themes at work among those who call themselves evangelical. Balmer said, all these folks are more or less evangelical, and Bebbington says, well, yes, perhaps so, but these themes are the guiding ones in the movement. In some ways, Balmer provides a boundary set, a big boundary to be sure, while Bebbington provides a centered set, which paradoxically reverses our expectations of who has the more inclusive approach. If Bebbington's approach is historical and Balmer's more journalistic, Bebbington's is every bit as descriptive of the modern situation as Balmer's. And Bebbington broadens the theological parameters into a centered set enough to irritate the neo-Puritans. Their strident accusations that Knoll and Bebbington are defining evangelicals sociologically miss the mark while it intends to dismiss and correct. As I read both of them, there is a dialectic at work in their, in their studies. That is, they are saying these are the evangelicals and this is what they believe alongside of this is what they believe and these are the evangelicals who do conform. Balmer does define evangelical more sociologically, but it is not fair to Bevington or to Knoll to say that they are defining the word evangelical sociologically. This has unfortunately become the instinctive hermeneutic for many in the neo-Puritan movement, and it prevents genuine understanding. Now to Bebbington's line of thinking. Bebbington latched on to biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism as the terms that define evangelicals. Bebbington's sharp perceptions are only slightly blunted by choosing to use such dull words. And if I may say so, such words do sound like sociology. My father was an English teacher, and he gave me a love for reading books about writing. And my favorites, E.B. White, William Zinzer, and Joseph Epstein, make me think words like conversionism 
are like most Cubs pitchers deserving of retirement. <laughs> Here we go then, Biblicism. Bebbington seeks to capture the evangelical theme of emphasizing Bible in expressions like these, the supreme evangelical court of appeal and the final standard. The New Testament was its focus. Personal devotion was a major element of what it meant to believe in the Bible. Distribution of the Bible, a consuming passion, and defense of its truthfulness, typical. Crucicentrism, what Bebbington says here taps into what I will say in the third and fourth lectures, but what he says is dead on. Evangelicalism feasts on the cross as the place where atonement is made and where forgiveness is found. The great preachers of evangelicalism focused on Christ and him crucified. Here the evangelicals were expressing Reformation theology. Such things as substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement, propitiation, efficacy of the blood, and the active obedience of Christ and justification were all connected to the cross. Some were notably concerned when either too much incarnation or even too much love and grace came into the theology. Bebbington observes that this emphasis on the atoning cross instead of the suffering of Christ or a crucifix or even a cross inside a church or the incarnation or the resurrection or even union with Christ distinguished evangelicalism from her alternatives. It is not now for me to evaluate this, but Bebbington's sketch reveals a notably impersonal, transactional approach to the cross. It is not so much that Christ died for us, but that the cross was a place of transaction. This has been a routine emphasis and indeed an overemphasis among most evangelicals. Conversionism. Evangelicals focus on getting saved, and to get saved you first have to get lost. There is no reason here to think the Puritan experience, that lengthy exploration into the inner consciousness with its attendant introspection and its capacity to tell a story that met up to the elder's approval, all that is the more extreme, but it is the extreme of the norm, that norm being the necessity of the new birth, a new birth that resulted in the ability of a person to witness to one's own personal spiritual conversion. The bigger, the better. The more introspective and self-condemning, the more congratulations. Key elements involved repentance, faith, baptism, testimony, and the evidence of conversion and moral transformation. I shall anticipate what I will say in the third lecture by contending now that evangelicals are better at creating an environment that precipitates decisions than they are at shaping lives into discipleship. The problem for the evangelical was perceived ecclesiastical nominalism and ritualism. Evangelicals have never tired of telling Luther's story, Newton's story, and Wesley's story. Though you might not know it by listening to some today, evangelicals have always wondered if conversion was sudden or gradual. The last term for Bebbington is activism. This word doesn't work for me because in the USA, activism tends to mean social activism, and that means social justice, and that's almost the exact opposite of what Bebbington means. 
For his theme is about personal evangelism, something evangelicals believe in, but don't, but like eating only healthy food options, they by and large don't do. The distinctive expression of activism was the missionary movement of evangelicalism. This is the one area where it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman, and the story of Phoebe Palmer, though rarely told today, is an an exceptional expression of evangelical activism. But activism isn't reducible to evangelism. It also means good works and compassion and care for the poor and the orphan and the hungry and the abused. War against sin in all its dimensions is what activism means. Space prohibits expansion here, but George Marsden long ago said something true about evangelicalism that I myself have failed to observe often enough when I have opinions about evangelicals, namely that it is transdenominational. In other words, evangelicalism is by its nature a coalition. And if so, then the confessional approach simply flies in the face of the nature of evangelicalism as a movement. And a professor who once taught at a well-known Christian college in Minnesota, who has written a number of books, one of them on post-conservative evangelicalism, and who is now teaching in Texas in and around Waco and Baylor, added two more themes to the Bebbington quadrilateral, namely that evangelicalism is a movement and not an organization, and it has great respect for the classical Christian creedal orthodoxies as well as for the generative themes of the Reformation. In other words, the operating assumption of evangelicalism is Protestant, neither explicitly Lutheran or Reformed orthodoxy. Problems and a proposal now. I like what Bebbington has done. With, now how long do I go? 20 after. I got three minutes. Whoa. I'm going to skip this. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine who is in Perth named Brian Harris has recently critiqued uh, the Bebbington quadrilateral, and he's argued that it's more about evangelicalism is more about passionate piety. In other words, he says, contemporary evangelicals know what they are bu- know that they are busy, albeit they, that they are not entirely clear as to what they are busy about. Uh, evangelicalism, uh, as I see it today, is a movement where saved people are exhorted to be activists. An evangelical, then, is someone who has experienced personal salvation or is someone with a story about a born-again experience. Conversionism is the gate of American evangelicalism. Now an observation that I perceive to be pervasive, in spite of the optimism I occasionally see in the literature, most evangelicals today would admit rather gleefully that they are in the minority. The entire culture war theory so animates so much of evangelicalism that it has become the consciousness of a minority. But this minority believes that it alone has experienced the saving grace of God, that it alone is the true people of God, and that it alone will spend eternity with God and with mostly evangelical others. Um, Let's see. 
Evangelical, then, is a minority that is focused on personal conversion that prompts passionate active living, but its focus is on personal conversion. My further claims, it is this personal conversion theme that best explains why so many went ballistic when Rob Bell courted or flirted with universalism in Love Wins. It is this that best explains why evangelicals get so irritated with Tom Wright and my understanding of the gospel. And it is this that best explains why penal substitution is so incredibly central to how the atonement is understood. When it all comes down to it, evangelicalism is about getting saved and explaining all of theology through the lens of salvation. When it comes to reading the Bible, everything is read through how to get people saved, even if there's hardly an Old Testament text to quote, which is perhaps why the word biblicism no longer applies to American evangelicalism in a generic sense, which is also why American evangelicals mostly don't even need the Old Testament. Genesis 1 to 2, add Genesis 3, and you can skip to Romans 3. That's the Bible of an evangelical. An evangelical, then, is someone with a born-again experience. Everything else is secondary, including the Trinity. And I'll stop there for now. Thank you.